A quick hello and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, John O'Vandriol. Thank you very much. <laughs> Happy to be here. Wonderful to have you. Um, we're going to be talking about the advantages of structured data, lots of things about schema markup. You use the term to geek out. So anybody who feels a bit geeky is welcome. And anyone who isn't feeling guilt geeky, I was going to say guilty, uh, can stick around because I've just been talking to Jano and he makes it all terribly accessible. Before we start, quick look at your brand, sir. That first brand, sir, I, I looked you up earlier on. I always do this at the start of the show. And your brand, sir, is already being invaded, if Anton can put it up, by CaliCube Tuesdays. There you go. And you can see there <laughs> the images. Uh, scholarly articles, no idea what that is because it's not you. Uh, but you are pretty scholarly. And down there in the left-hand corner, we've got that delightful picture of you. And when Jonah Alderson from Yo uh, Yoast told me uh, that I should have a chat with you, that's the picture I saw. And I thought you were 16 <laughs> years old and this kind of schema, schema markup genius. Long live photo filters. Um, and if we go on to the next one, we can see that, in fact, kind of it's getting taken over. When you search for your name on images, you get my name, you get CaliCube, and you get brand search. So once anybody accepts to come on this show, they get kind of swallowed into this universe <laughs> of brand SERPs and CaliCube and images. And your, your, my favorite photo in the entire universe is right there, smack in the middle of you looking 12 <laughs> years old, which I assume you were. And then if we click on CaliCube, it gets even worse for you because the next screen, it gets even more into the CaliCube universe. Oh, wow. Yeah, it looks good, doesn't it? I had a graphic designer redo the whole kind of graphic design aspect of CaliCube, and you can see, I think, the, the, the effect of that kind of graphic design effort. Now, I've, t I've teased you about that photo, and I thought I would put up one last screen before we get on with the conversation where your photo should be superimposed on your face. Yes, brilliant. And my photo, my equivalent photo of me looking... 14 years old, is superimposed more or less, there you go, on my face. So on with the show. Jano, welcome. Yeah, again, thanks for having me. I'm in, in, excited to join you. Brilliant. And we're going to be talking about schema markup. Now, uh, we had a quick chat beforehand, and you were saying uh, the schema markup is something we sprinkle on the cake of our clients to make the SERP look prettier or something like that. Yeah, the that's a bit of the issue I have with structured data as it's used in, in the most common sense globally, is that it's just used as an afterthought on top of the website. You'll mm. sprinkle a bunch of markup on top of it, and look, we have brand beautiful brand SERPs. And of course, that's the carrot everybody's, the Google's holding in front of everybody's nose. That's how it started. But in all honesty, there's much more you can achieve by using structured data, um, especially if you build it into the foundation of an organization, not only a website, but actually in, into the foundation of an entire organization. Right. They suddenly start to be so able to do to, incredible to, stuff. To, to start with, before we get into that, because I know uh, you're going to go down obviously. that rabbit hole incredibly quickly, uh, how, how well do you feel using that sprinkling of schema markup to get those pretty bells and whistles in the SERPs helps to get clients on board for the deeper that stuff that we're going to go into? It, it totally depends on the type of organization you're dealing with and the complexity of the situation. You know, if, if you have a, the average small business website that has a Google My Business listing that's well-maintained, they have a good maintained blog, yeah. um, then pretty much more nine out of ten times the main investment should just be at those sprinkles. 
because you're already doing good in, in a, in a well-organized manner. And then for me, that's actually where structured data becomes valuable for real is once you get into a project where that organization isn't there. Hmm. And then still for me personally, I consider the markup still as a little bit of juice on top because then the real power becomes that you start to organize your organization and every outlet it has, including its website to bring out right. structured and, and focused content, for example, or, or the way you connect to your clients. Yeah, you, you just keep going down the rabbit hole faster than I can pull you back up to the top. Um, so just one more thing on that. It, it's that kind of idea is a lot of companies will say, well, beyond the bells and whistles that I might get from a bit of schema markup, I don't see any point in investing more. Um, and that's kind of a, a blocking point where they'll say, I'll put the sprinkles on the pricing, the, the availability, uh, whatever that, that might be, or the review snippets to get that immediate payback. But beyond mm -hmm. that, I don't see the investment opportunity. I don't see where the payback is. How do you address that? How do you address that? Well, first of all, you start to look at what are the general marketing opportunities that business still has. You know, mm. if they're blazing opportunities somewhere else within your marketing department, for example, go after those at first. Because right. once you start working in, in more involved projects, the chance of a big return starts to become smaller especially in regards to organic search. It might help you in a ton of different ways, like, like business intelligence, but your direct return on going beyond the basics will be too much for many organizations. But for example, mid-level e-commerce shop can already provide much more value uh, to its own organization once they start to expand, for example, through additional Google Analytics information. All right. Okay. So what you, do you, mean you by can that? actually, you can very easily start with the basics and if if most marketing channels are already um, more or less at their max then you, for each channel goes you start to need to do additional uh, investments with a lower return and that might be the moment you start to look at advancing with schema.org because that moment there's already a good balance within an organization so so as kind of seos and techie seos and geeky seos we shouldn't be shoving it down people's throats we should be saying we should start investing in this when other marketing opportunities don't have a better payback than this does for me yes but that's i most of all used to be a technical seo and from my point of view, technical SEO forms the foundation on which mm. other marketing channels can actually generate a higher uh, revenue. Brilliant. If the can foundation I... is well, then you actually can start to build on top of that. Right, yeah, the idea of foundation, which comes back now, now we can go down the rabbit hole, is coming back to that, is you're saying you should build your site with Schema Markup as the foundation. And in fact, if you go beyond that, somebody like Andrea Volpini from WordLift is also saying you should build your entire organization around a kind of structured approach, which can be represented easily by structured data. Yeah, but it also can help. My last employer, for example, was an organization that was highly isolated in silos. So you had a right. media department, you had a separate wholesale department, you had a separate manufacturer department and a separate, everything within that organization was separated and everybody was talking their own business vocabulary. And what we did there was introduce, based on Schema.org, a completely new business vocabulary. And that helped unlock those silos within that organization because suddenly everybody was talking the same business vocabulary. Right. So you're, you're using Schema Markup to bring people together, which sounds like a delightfully hippie kind of idea, as you bring all these kind of things together. To be even Sorry, less, I'm actually 
using it to bust open doors and not even in a politely manner because it with the things I'm doing nowadays for organization is where I help marketing the, the departments get all their data collected in one area. Um, right. That that also opens up to start rebuilding data layers in, for example, Google Tag Manager. If everybody on marketing is using the same data, then everybody hmm. can also use the same data layer. Can you explain that a little bit? Because, I mean, obviously that's really geeky and, and people who don't know Google Tag Manager and data layers probably haven't grasped what you mean. And even well, I, who under even I who <laughs> understand that, uh, kind of don't really know what practically it means? Within a lot of organizations, they want to track a whole lot of different things on, on, on the websites or on their apps. For example, where people click, how deep they scroll, how long they're on a certain page. And they want to tr trigger and, and store all those additional actions and movements and timestamps, you name it, uh, into a data layer that, that can be pushed, for example, into Google Tag Manager. Uh, because you can create all kinds of additional fields in Google Analytics where you can store all kinds of information. Um, and that often is pushed into a analytics via a general data layer. Right, okay, so and where does schema that, come into that? Um, the problem with those data layers is nine out of 10 times, um, they don't have a product owner for them. Mm -hmm. And everybody's just doing their own thing in that data layer, and that often creates a situation where certain data is missing, but also certain data being available under di five different properties, exactly the same data. Right, okay. And without a product owner for a data layer, it, it, it easily becomes an out of control thing. And where structured data and especially schema.org helps is that you can form a foundation with a lot of information where you don't have to think what is it gonna be the name of that uh, attribute, what is gonna be the type of that, thing you, you can all find or somebody already specified all those types and properties for you and if you take that as a basis for design of your data layer then suddenly you can use schema.org terms to publish that information on your website you can use those same terms and reuse mm -hmm. them and shoot them into your data layer and into google analytics um, but what i've also done for example is you, you, you work together with erp systems in the back ends and use the sales data and actually build a product database based on schema.org data. So suddenly you have schema.org data in the back end, you have schema.org data on the front end, you have schema.org data at the analytics level. And when all their reports comes in together in, in, into their data environments, then you don't have to do a lot of effort to map all the, mm. that different information to gain business analytics because everybody is using the same structured data, the same terms, the same types, to process all that information. And for people for like um, 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 uh, conversion optimization, they'll be interested in, in action information. Oh, there's right. a whole lot of actual action types and properties in Schema.org. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I hadn't thought that. That's genius. And one, one problem that does strike me is that Schema Markup, you can say an awful lot with it. You can express a great number of things and relationships and attributes, but it is still limited. It doesn't express everything. What do you do with the big kind of world out there of things that you can't yet express? Mm, well, it depends on, on where, what the intent of the structured data is. If it's, I want to feed the search engines, then nine out of 10 times, you'll be satisfied with the things you can find in schema.org mm -hmm. itself. Um, Additional properties beyond schema.org markup you can do. You, you can use additional vocabularies. Uh, there, there, there are, I think, thousands of linked open data vocabularies you right. can use. Um, 
but then you come into the area where you can do that, but then you go beyond the support offered by the search engines. Right. Okay. And kind of from our perspective, I mean, you can. So what you what you sorry what you're doing is saying use the search engine core, the the, the core that the search engines are using as your basis, but you can actually expand the vocabulary if needs be. And then when yeah. the search engines start to catch up, presumably if you've been consistent, you can then map that to however they decide to move forward. Yeah, and and at the same time, I've done it several times now where we had, we we use on on the front end, we use the information schema.org offered, but internally we build an extension to schema.org. Right, with a translator in between. Now you can create self-hosted extensions, for example, Mm. and those self-hosted extensions don't have to be public. You can use that information solely for internal purposes as well. So you can still publish the information based on the super types that are contained within schema.org. So if, if, for example, if you create a new type of moped and you give that its unique typing, that's great, but its super type is product. So when you go to the front end, you can simply publish the product information, yet within your internal systems, you can use your external, your additional vocabulary. Brilliant. Okay. But this is kind of, you were saying earlier on that you no longer work with the smaller clients. You're working with enterprise level. No, where also, all of- yes, I still do smaller clients, um, but because those tickle my 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 imagination. Often, I've, I've recently I've done a global babysitting website, for example, where I had to organize babysitting services in four different versions of French for four different locations in the world. Well, that starts to become interesting. Um, for example, With, a babysitter is called different in Canada than it's called in, in Belgium than it's called in, in France. Right, yeah, okay. Which, which brings me to the language agnostic nature of all this. I mean, how powerful is that? I mean, with the idea that you can express something in terms of structure and attributes and relationships and then stop worrying about the language behind it. Um. I'm still not sure where the search engines stand. From my point of view, they're still mostly Mm -hmm. English-based. Though when you're doing a a website in France, for example, then there's little point in providing Wikipedia, Wikidata, or whatever source identifiers if they provide additional English information, yet you're trying to disambiguate something in French. Um, Sorry, you say that there's there's little point or no point or some point? depending the situation. Wikipedia, for example, and Wikidata are, 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 can be very strange where you can find a term like babysitter mm. um, in five different languages, but yet in 20 other different languages, it's called so differently that there is no link between Wikipedia pages themselves. Right. So when you then start using the English term to disambiguate something that doesn't exist in the French version, then you have to be very careful. And in the end, you're, when you're doing a French website, for example, you're trying to rank for the French uh, search results. So you better make sure you're using the, the terms and the entity names that are actually used in France. So your advice here is to say, if there is an exact equivalent that has been identified by Wikipedia, it is a good idea. But if the exact equivalence isn't there or there is some ambiguity about it, it's better to stay away. Yeah, and um, though, uh, for example, if you look at DBpedia and Wikidata, those are language agnostic. And then if you actually can find matching identities in Wikidata and Wiki and DBpedia, then you actually can quite easily refer to those because those carry all the different languages they know information about. Brilliant, which brings me to the point, in fact, probably best to steer away from Wikipedia and stick to Wikidata and DBpedia, or is that taking it too far? 
Ooh, ooh, ooh. Difficult question, bad question, good question. No, uh, what I'm liking about Wikidata uh, over the last couple of years is that it's become a centralization point of a lot of different mm. locations. So, for example, if you're looking for, uh, uh, let's keep it at the term babysitter, if you look at that Wikidata, it actually has referrals to DBpedia. It has referrals to all the Wikipedia pages. So, sure, it, you can go to the uh, the extra step and also provide the DBpedia links, but personally, I only provide those if they're not mentioned in the Wikidata ent uh, entities. Right, but I mean, and if you provide the Wikidata link, of course, Wikidata is linked to Wikipedia, so you're pretty sure that the linking is going to be correct. Exactly. Whereas if you do it the other way around, it's not necessarily going to work out positively for you. And then you say, take it another step, and if it isn't, if the DBpedia isn't referencing Wikidata, either you add it or you, you add it to Wikidata or add it to your site. Yeah, but, but but I only take that next step to be very clear um, in, in cases where there's some really big need to disambiguate the content on the page. Um, right, okay. Oh, there's a question. Sorry, excuse me. You said a big need to disambiguate. Now, kind of what I think kind of all of us, and especially me, we get a bit extreme and we think I'm going to disambiguate everything and some things don't need disambiguating. You were talking about medical terms that do, um, but a very specific, unique name doesn't necessarily is that more or less fair for example in, in the medical world things can get very complicated because you can have for example four different procedures which all use part of the same keywords in mm. their naming and there's just a slight different somewhere at the end of the name of that medical procedure okay, okay um, so another question so <laughs> we can come back to that in just a moment it just makes me realize i mean in english the way we learn english is obviously mm -hmm. sorry obviously when you learn english as an english speaker you don't learn the rules you just learn by being told that's wrong say it this way so when you're an english person you get to adulthood generally speaking you've got no idea what the rules are and if somebody asks you to explain english grammar you've got no idea you say oh just like that that's how we say it um, but then if you start thinking about nouns, words used as nouns, adjectives, can you rely on that, the big red bus, that Google will understand that the bus is always or is the, the noun in that case? Mm, that's where I always take the additional step and make sure to provide things in properties as well. So if you're talking about a red bus, yes, I'll specify the color is red of that bus. I don't, well, take, okay. chan I don't take chances. It's accumulated. Um, you you make sure it's in the title of the page. You make mm -hmm. sure you mention it in some form of, of uh, in the meta description. You make sure it's on the H1 on the page. You make sure that the paragraphs of the H2 that follows that H1 to carry additional and, for example, uh, synonyms of that information. It's not all that different than we did used to do in SEO 10 years ago when mm -hmm. we were doing keyword optimization. The big difference nowadays you know, when you do naming optimization and which information do I put in my titles and my H1s is that you don't just look at the keyword search volume any longer. Hmm. You also make, make damn sure that the keywords you're using are actually attached to the entity you want to illuminate on that page. And what you often see is that people take overlapping terms, stuff them into one single page because they all carry a lot of keyword search volume. But when you really delve into those keywords, you often discover that those keywords resemble different entities. 
Right. And and that, that kind of brings us to the thing about yeah, context clouds, which Bill Slavsky talks a lot about. I mean, the idea that a whole group of words together create that context that allow us to understand which entity or which entities and attributes and relationships we're talking about. And mm -hmm. it, you've got to be very careful not to bring in those confused, unrelated uh, uh, entities and words into your context cloud. Then you start to give off the to declarify the signal because then you start to confuse the search engine. Is it? But are they talking about A, B, or C? Yeah. Make sure it's obvious what you're talking about. And then we I, come to the thing. Well, sorry, which uh, which I keep interrupting you, but I'm terribly curious. Uh, Jono Alderson is talking about the fact or his his approach that Google likes a page to be about one single entity majoritarily. And once you start including multiple entities and you have this page that talks about three different entities in equal measure, it gets a bit confused. Is that a fair comment or am I misrepresenting him? Mm, no, I, 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 I yes, I, Jono and I agree on that one for the bigger part. Um, though with the passage indexing, I think things are evolving rapidly. Ooh. Ooh, so go, on, go, go on, go on, express that in a, in a more clear manner. Well, the interesting part is for passage indexing is that it can get things to rank well in search for a very particular part somewhere buried on a page, yeah. as opposed to the accumulative value of the main keywords of the entire text. They actually look at the individual parts on the page. Um, now that's interesting because if you have a lot of old content, for example, on a website that isn't maintained regularly, um, it means that you have a bigger chance that old contents will rank every now and then. Mm. Um, the downside of it is um, if you have pages that are about so many different topics, it means inherently you made it difficult for those pages to rank. And now you're counting on passage indexing, indexing and, and ranking for being shown for those pages. And what you actually would should do is look an, another time at those pages, which are the entities the page is ranking for, and optimize that page for that. Or I always prefer that one, start writing additional content. You don't always have to renew blog content of four years old. You can you know, search engine take into account how you grow as a writer. They, they can tell the difference over time. So probably right. it's better to refer to that old article and write new content about the topics you should be highlighting. Yeah, and I kind of like that, that, that idea of kind of what I did in the past and what I'm doing today um, are not mutually exclusive. We evolve over time. Search engines could perhaps get a grip of it. I mean, what, one thing I have noticed though is Google does have trouble understanding or appreciating that something is very old content and is not now relevant to a person for instance i mean i'm, I'm looking at mm -hmm. people's brand search and it will throw something up from 15 years ago that absolutely isn't relevant to today's world um so that that, that time concept is still quite com complex for google yeah but then you also get into the situation is, is how well structured is that information it's based on hmm. uh, if you have a well-organized website with a good uh, URL structure and, and good topics uh, as a, the main taxonomy of your your your, uh, your menu bar, for example, and if the listing websites you are being shown on also have good uh, setup, then then things become more easily. Google has to aggregate uh, a gazillion different pages, and then they have to make sense of it. So the more structured every source in itself is, the more easy it is for them to come to the right conclusion. Unfortunately, especially for long existing 
organizations and websites is that there are so many ambiguity out there because of historic information that it's starting to become problematic for the search engine to deduce which is the correct information. Right. Okay. Because I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm looking into kind of brand SERPs and Google understanding people and brands and entities in general around those brands, and it, it is it is true that it's really difficult. And you said billions of pages trying to sort it all out. When they're well organized, it's actually relatively simple. So simple that even a fool like me can do it. Um, but as soon as it's not organized into this ontological structure that kind of seems obvious when you see it, but isn't when you're building your website. Mm -hmm. It becomes phenomenally messy and phenomenally difficult, phenomenally quickly. Yep. <laughs> and now and apply that on a scale on a, on a scale for for Google, and imagine how those engineers have to try to resolve that. And one of the things often is if what what I think is missing. Sure, from the business end, we can complain a lot about the search engines, mm -hmm. but I deeply respect what they're able to generate based on the mess that's really out there, because the the internet is ugly. That, and I'm not a, talking about the, the the way the websites look, but if you really go to the nitty gritty and look at the source of the generic web page, it's mm. good luck making sense of that one. But that, that that's for me is an incredibly interesting point. I mean, I've been building CaliCube and kind of pulling in data from people like WordLift and from Authoritas, and incredibly grateful for them for actually doing the pre-chewing work. But even with that, it's still pretty difficult, and it's given me more empathy. I think the empathy you already have for Google and saying. It's phenomenally difficult, and it's very easy to to laugh at Google or to criticize Google or Bing uh, for being stupid or not understanding. When in fact, it's understanding anything in that mess is an astonishing achievement. If I look, for example, at we're currently in a situation where the structured data testing tool is going to be migrated over to Schema.org, and Google itself will only have the rich result testing tool. Right, okay, that's what's happening. I was wondering about that. So basically, Google is saying, we're only going to test for what we will show in rich results. And the, But the, the tool that currently exists is going to be migrated to schema.org so we can still validate officially in inverted commas. Yeah, exactly. And that also, with that move, they're going to remove the Google-specific checks from the structured data testing tool, and they're just going to, it's going to be a tool that's just checking, did you use your syntax correctly and do the schema.org proper types and properties you use? Did you right. use those in a valid manner? And uh, are Google actually just giving their tool, the current tool, and saying, use that adapter? Are they, are they actually getting actively involved in, in helping make it work in that manner? Um, I think for part of the same people that are involved in schema.org also are in, in one way or another involved in the structured data testing tool. Although, as is generally known about Google, the difficulty for them, it, it's an, an organization with a thousand different groups mm. you know, trying to work together on the, on the umbrella named Google. So things don't always go as fluently as, as you would expect from an organization like that. Yeah, I think that's another thing we often forget as digital marketers, SEOs, whatever you want to call us, is that Google isn't this kind of unified organization where everything functions and is incredibly fluid and... and if um, only. <laughs> And it's actually lots of different departments who don't necessarily talk to each other, who probably fight each other for resources, just like any other company. Yeah, it, it's, I can't imagine it's any different over there than it is for, for example, an organization like Shell or, or uh, even an Amazon. It's, I think it's sure there are differences, but in the end, they struggle with the same issues most people at organizations struggle with. They're Brilliant. just applying it at a large, much larger scale. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. We, in fact, we were going to talk about e-commerce, and I think uh, Jeannie Hill came along to hear what you had about e said had to say about e-commerce. She actually is now asking a question: How do you schema to make product entity relationship and avoid the common duplicate content on an e-commerce site at the category level? Now, that is a question I never would have asked in a million years. So I'm very glad Jeannie did. Oh well. At the category level, it's not that difficult, depending on your side of steps. Uh, she has a follow-up. Watch out. Uh, no, no worries. Um, um, <laughs> in the end, you want to identify the unique product detail page. It doesn't matter in how many categories you can find that product. Mm. If you follow that snippet to its product detail page, you end up on one URL. Um, then you also have the situation, most common nowadays are two types of product detail pages. You either have one where you have all the different options on one single page and you can click all you want and JavaScript changes it, but the URL doesn't. Yep. And the more generic or old-fashioned version is each variant has its own parameter URL and you can decide whether or not you want to canonicalize all those parameters to one single page or not. Um, whether you do that depends, in my experience, mostly on the size of, or size of your website. I've done product websites with more than 80 million products. Hell yeah, I'm going to canonicalize because I'm not going to wait for Google to uh, allow the amount, proper amount of crawl rate to be calling 80 million products on a regular basis. Right. So it, there is not one true, in, in that regard, I often see John Mueller struggle with this as well. There is no one good solution for that. As always, it depends. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that kind of thing is, is if you've got 8 million products and you you allow every single variant of those products to be indexed, you're going to end up with gazillions of pages and never be able to deal with them all. Or Google, and Google end up not being able to crawl them all. I had a client who was asking me, it's not actually products, it's not e-commerce, it's a different case. And what we ended up deciding was saying, these variants are interesting and these ones aren't. So we're going to canonicalize the mm -hmm. ones that aren't and allow the ones that are. And basically just go through and define which ones, which variants are going to be interesting. So, you know, that's a mid, a mid route that I think people can take that maybe they don't realize they can take. Yeah. Uh, the problem with those mid routes of always often is Oops. the technical solution chosen to <laughs> create that option. Because if you, if you start to create a system where certain pages will get be canonicalized and some don't, then how are you going to check you canonicalize the right ones? Right. Um, and, and that's often with e-commerce pages, I've, I've, especially in those large websites. Um, okay, they push a new uh, uh, update live and things go boom on a website with more than 80 million pages. Um, by the time you got that restored, you're easily six to eight months ahead. Right. And imagine oh, you start... So in my own defense, I would just like to point out, I've never dealt with a site with anything more than 100,000 pages. So uh, I'm still playing in the, in the small ballpark. No, even with 100,000 pages, once you make a mistake that's big enough in the core of your website and Google picks that up, they'll see it as a signal. Oh, that, that site has changed. And they pick up the entire website within three to five days and they crawl your 100,000 pages and then they're happy, we've done it. But it took you two weeks to resolve the problem. But the end result of the fix isn't that, doesn't have that much of an impact. Mm. And getting that 100,000 pages re-indexed because you fix an e issue that's now in the index, that can easily take six months. Mm. So yeah, it, it, it's not all, it, the size of the site doesn't always say how fast you can get things resolved. Uh, 
the good part is, is when you have a website like 10 or 50 or 100 million pages, is that you probably already have a good large crawl amount. So if things go boom, you can easily create separate index, index files, sitemap files to get the pages re-indexed you want to have re-indexed. So, right. So, but, I mean, you would say don't go the middle route, always go for one or the structural other. Structural solutions. And make sure that you can keep control yeah. uh, and that it doesn't go boom in your face somewhere yeah. down the line. Quick fixes and hacks always tend to return and, yeah, as boomerangs. Right. Okay. <laughs> very good piece of advice. Thank you very much. Um, you were saying that there's going to be some new implementation schema markup in e-commerce sites. Yeah, there's a where, where's it going? Because I mean, obviously that's going to be phenomenally important for Google and for internet marketers. Um, sure. Easy, easy answer to that question is is um, take the Google Merchant Center data feed specifications and imagine you have to specify those in schema.org. Well, that's what's recently been done. Over the last right. couple of months, all kinds of new types and properties have been created in schema.org with a ton of examples. Right which are all, um, mostly the project has been carried by somebody from Google, from the uh, uh, manager for the uh, Merchant Center feeds. And they've created a whole new section of product information, uh, which allows you to express the same information you would for Google Merchant Center, but then in structured data. And, and with, with that, what they're aiming to do ultimately is say, let's not bother with uh, Google Ads feeds for the for the Google Shopping, let's just go with structured data and that you feed Google through your site using structured data? No, it's not to move away from the feeds. But, mm -hmm. for example, one of the things they can start doing is, okay, here you have a data feed. Now you publish that information on your web page as well. It, are the two in sync with each other? Mm. Can we actually trust sending people to your website because does your website offer the same information your feed does? If so, the trustworthiness of the data rises because you have two different important sources that actually say the same thing. Yet if you say your data feed something is in out of stock, but on the web page you say it's still in stock, ah, that then it's a signal, hey, there's something wrong. Maybe we shouldn't rank this. Oh, and rank it in what terms? In terms of Google Shopping, Google Ads? Um, it, it could either be in, in, in Google uh, uh, Shopping, but it can also well be in the service. Which implies that Google are using the Google Shopping feed to double-check the organic results, which means we have every interest to push uh, our sites into the Google Shopping environment, whether we pay for the, the clicks or not. The problem is we don't know yet which carrot they're going to dangle in front of us to, to, to make sure we start publishing that extended information on websites as well. Um, and that, that's how you see Google. They're dangling carrots to try and get us to do what is going to help them ultimately sure, organize uh, the web. Especially the new schema.org. Uh, in my personal experience, the majority of what, especially the bigger organizations uh, that participate in marketplaces or in, in Google Shopping um, have separate systems to provide the feeds for, that, for those uh, systems. And that... Nine out of 10 times, not all information used in product feeds is actually present on the, on the product level, on a web page. Right. So now organizations really need to start looking into their systems and, and make the judgment, okay, that information we're now publishing in the feeds, do we also have that available on the web page? And if so, can we also publish it in structured data format? And I have already looked in Magento and, and WooCommerce and a ton of different uh, web systems over the last six months, 
in a what 90% of those systems aren't ready to publish everything Google's Merchant Center wants to have in Schema.org. Right. Um, simple example of that would be or, or websites, especially in, in the uh, the health scene, or, or um, there are a lot of collection products where you buy a basket or a box and that contains three or four different products. Mm-hmm. Most websites store that product as one product in their backend systems. Right, yeah. And give it a name and publish it at, at, uh, that way. What you actually should do is create a product with an offer, and that offer has multiple products contained within it. Ooh, I like that. And, but yeah, but the problem is most e-commerce systems don't allow you to create a collection product. Right, okay. They, they don't... I mean- yeah, sorry, th- th- this just kind of, it, it strikes me as one of those things that when you say, I think, yeah, that's really obvious, and you've got these entities with sub-entities and all Imagine the graph is the easy part, but actually building a system where you can connect all those products under a single offer, oh, most e-commerce systems out there uh, that are generally used don't have that option. But, uh, uh, sorry, coming coming back one step, you said, well, that's the easy part, but actually for a lot of people, visualizing that structure and being being able to ra- recognize even that there is that structure is very difficult. Recognizing that all these things are different entities and that within the entity of a collection, you have multiple entities that weren't initially in that connection. connection. They're all separate entities. You, do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Thinking in graphs is, is a, has a steep learning curve, especially because most people don't think in graphs. Which is ironic because that's how our brains function. Yeah, but we're not aware of that. The same what you said in the <laughs> beginning, when we learn, learn a language, we don't learn the rules first. We don't learn to think in a graph. It's just something how our brain is wired and how we naturally think. And don't forget, in the end, all those systems that are being built right now are based on how our, our personal neurons work. I just find it astonishingly ironic that our brains work this way. Google is emulating, or these machines are emulating our brains, and yet we can't get our heads around it. That's <laughs> such a brilliant situation to be in as yeah, human marvelous. Wonderful. I, that was amazing. I think that's a lovely way to end it, just because it just goes to show. How, oh, add on. Hey, um, one more thing. Since you ask about the e-commerce uh, stuff, one of the things when we create feeds for Merchant Center we also do is create item group IDs. Now, you can mm-hmm. create item group IDs so that in Merchant Center you can have a single product that creates a pop-up uh, where you see all the different variants of the product you sell in one single pop-up, as opposed to getting all those 20 different variants to uh, show up in the Google Shopping. Um, Which means we, you keep it all in one page, and you've got the schema market that then shows the variants yeah, within that schema If you then click market. on the result, you get a pop-up where you see all the different variants your organization is selling. So you have the blue version of an Adidas shoe, you have the yellow version, size 40, size 41. You can we, have all those variants in Google, in Google Shopping in one single pop-up. In which case, you don't have those multiple pages, which would potentially mean that Google sees it as multiple products, whereas, in fact, it's one product with variants. Exactly. Well, in, in Google Merchant Center feed, you create all those product variants you want to bundle. You give the same item group ID. And that is being reflected in Schema.org markup as well. So you can create a product group in, in Schema.org markup. Right. You can give that product group its ID, and you can say from that product group, these are all the variants that belong to this product group. Right. At, at the risk of sounding terribly out of date and out of touch, how long ago was that implemented? 
That's being now it's it currently is in the pending section of schema.org oh. um, and it's been introduced over the last four or five months. Oh, okay. So I haven't been not paying attention as much as I thought I'd not been paying attention. No, but I do think it's one of the things that marketers that are involved in e-commerce need to start looking into that section of schema.org. Start looking at what data you produce in, in Google Merchant Center and then look into do I actually have that information available on my web page? If not, you still have X amount of months to make it available within your systems before Google comes with the new specifications they'll pr produce on, on sh Google Shopping, for example. But as you say, kind of with, with I mean, with all these, all the, all, the, all the shopping, a lot of shopping platforms, that means reorganizing your, your database, which is a phenomenally big ask. Yeah, that, that, that's one of the things we're looking uh, into as, as one of the serious problems. You know, systems like WooCommerce actually need to build some, rebuild some of their backend systems. Do you think they will? Mm. Uh, that's going to be interesting. I expect not, unless the, the carrot is big enough. You know, if, if enough, if if, the, if there is enough benefit for organizations to start publishing that information, if that, the ROI on that is seriously enough, then that will force those systems to adapt. Will that happen in the next six months? No, it won't. It well, sorry, that, there's a question. <laughs> this is Google in 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 very forcing our hand and pushing us down a specific route that suits Google. Do you think that's Google bullying or Google? It's, no, it's not just Google. Because I was going to finish. Oh, sorry. Just, just say, sorry, I was going to give you two choices, or not just Google, or these machines bullying us, or are they trying to encourage as much in the way a parent would to organize our information in a better way that's more serviable to the rest of the world? The latter. Definitely the latter. <laughs> it didn't make much sense, but yes. Google isn't imposing anything on us. Um, people who know that haven't been involved in the discussions in all the add-ons to schema. Right, okay. It's been a completely open discussion. Most of all, for example, uh, the GS1 organization has been involved in these discussions. A lot of what has been added to schema.org has been done in a way that it actually cooperates with what the GS1 is doing. Well, the GS1 is the biggest global organization around product identifiers and product information. Can you just quickly? Profile. Yeah, okay, yeah. They, for example, it's the GS1 that provides uh, the EAN numbers, the barcodes. Right, okay. Which um, I, I, I found astonishing in the 70s, and it's astonishing they're still around, isn't it? They're hugely important. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and what they've done, they've taken a leap before Schema.org did it and actually um, did a lot of things around uh, uh, sizes of products. And what is now being added to specify to Schema.org to provide, to provide the sizes of products is hugely based on what GS1 has, has done. Now, Schema.org itself has been uh, the products uh, part of Schema.org directly comes from good relations made by Martin Hepp, a professor, mm. professor from Germany. And he is still involved in making sure that Schema.org doesn't add anything that conflicts with good relations. So it's actually what's been added and created for Schema.org right now isn't being created in isolation. It's actually being created in cooperation with the bigger organizations out there that use similar markup and making sure that whatever is done in Schema.org works in hand-to-hand -hand with what the GS1 is doing, but also what's been specified in good relations so it's definitely not on an island wonderful that was beautifully eloquent and i'm very glad you put your finger up and stopped me stopping the show <laughs> and and pushed it on to the extra point thank you very much Jana. that was absolutely brilliant i enjoyed it greatly uh, quick, 
word to everybody that next week uh, we've changed. It's not going to be Leraz, it's going to be Nava Hopkins. So please do join us next Tuesday for Nava Hopkins. Not quite sure what we're going to be talking about yet because it's all a bit last minute. Thank you, Jano, for that. You get the song. A quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Jano. Thank you very much. I oh, greatly brilliant. enjoyed myself. <laughs>